and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. You can take your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been doing a study of the book of Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians. And we've covered so far the first three chapters, which are all the doctrinal side of Ephesians. Once again, Ephesians is three parts doctrine and three parts practical application of that doctrine. It's balanced. It is balanced. And that balance becomes very important as we get into chapter 4 of Ephesians because it begins with recognizing that balance and how we need to be balanced in our lives. And that's where we are this evening in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. And it begins with the words, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. And whenever you come across the word therefore, that word indicates that what is about to be said is a result of what has just previously been stated. And it's a key word, a key word, one of those logical connectives that when you're aware of that, you're aware of what it's indicating, it helps you to understand greater what the context is. The word therefore, in this case, is, has a result of everything that's been said in the doctrinal side. And in that doctrinal side of Ephesians, we've learned about what God's done for us through Christ. There are three great doctrinal treatises in the Word of God. The seven church epistles of Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians, those seven church epistles are that part of the Word of God that's written directly to us today. All of God's Word is profitable. All of it is beneficial to us. And all of it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We can learn from all of God's Word, and there's much that we do learn from all of it, but not all of it is written directly to us now. Things have changed over time. When Jesus Christ came, He fulfilled the law. And because He fulfilled the law, the law as it was in the Old Testament no longer directly applies to us. We can still learn from it. It still gives us much to understand about what's involved in the walk but it's not written directly to us. But the church epistles, which were written after the day of Pentecost, are for the church today. And out of those seven of Romans through Thessalonians, the epistle of Romans, Ephesians, and Thessalonians are key in setting what the doctrine is. Romans is a doctrinal epistle, And it sets right believing for us. And it tells us what the believer's past is. It tells us how God, through Jesus Christ, brought us from the point of being totally without God and saved us. It talks about how we get born again of God's Spirit. It's there that we find how to get born again. 
And that talks about the believer's past and what Jesus Christ did to make us righteous. Following Romans is Corinthians. Corinthians, that epistle, is a reproof epistle which corrects the practical error that crept into the church from not adhering to the doctrine of Romans. Galatians is a correction epistle, but this doesn't correct practical error, but doctrinal error from, again, not adhering to Romans. And it relates very much to Romans. You can do a side-by-side comparison of what's covered in Romans and what's covered in Galatians. And you'll see that those two are very connected. Then Ephesians is the next one, and it doesn't deal with the believer's past, but our present. What we now have as a result of what Jesus Christ did. We learned about how we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. We learned how God has called us to be his habitation, his dwelling place, how he's taken of two of the Jew and Gentile and made one new man. And we learn this great mystery that we are fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ and of one body. All of these truths were covered in Ephesians about who we are now. Thessalonians, the third great doctrinal treatise, covers the believer's future, and that's the hope, the return of Christ. And that, because there's no messing that one up, when he comes, he comes and he gathers us together. There's no, like, practical error. Oh, gosh, I was out for lunch today, that day, and I missed it. You know, so here's what you do. There's no messing that up. There's no need for a practical reproof or doctrinal reproof of it. So here in Ephesians, and going into it now, building on what it does talk about who we are in Christ and all that we have, It says that I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. And that's true for Paul, who is the the writer. God is the author. Many writers in the Bible, one author. God's the author of it all. And it's true in a very literal sense and figurative sense when he says that he is the prisoner of the Lord. He was the prisoner of the Lord literally in that he was in jail. He was in bonds at that time. He was in Rome in prison. It's also true figuratively in that he was, in his heart, just the prisoner of the Lord. This was something that indicated his his complete, total commitment that there was no getting out of this. Now, did he have free will? Sure. But just in terms of his heart, he was never leaving. He was never breaking that commitment. And as the prisoner of the Lord, the next word is beseech. I there, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation or calling wherewith you are called. That walking worthy is the word axios, and it indicates a balance. That's what that word, the root word for that is in the Greek. It's a balance. And the balance that's being spoken of here is a balance between the doctrine and the application. And the walking worthy or being in balance with it, it's worthy is a good translation of it because God wants us to live in a manner that is commensurate with what he's made us to be. In other words, God did all this wonderful stuff for us. He, did, he blessed us with all these blessings and he doesn't want us to just live as though that wasn't the case, as though nothing changed, as though he hadn't given us anything. Um, I, 
sometime a few months ago, was watching a show on Netflix called The Crown. Um, some of you may have heard of that. It's about Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, it goes into like this whole thing about her, her reign as queen and so on and so forth. And something that really impressed me, really struck me watching that show was how much she and, certain, and, and other members, not all, <laughs> but other members of the royal family lived in light of who they were by birth. She was the queen. That was her birthright. That was her inheritance. And she recognized the responsibility she had as the queen. She recognized that this was a great privilege, but it was also a great responsibility, and, and she lived in light of that. And a lot of times, she did not just do things that she may have done otherwise. She didn't just live to please herself. Her uncle did. He, if you know the history of England, Edward abdicated the throne for his own pleasure. But she felt a sense of responsibility because of who she was. God's made us his sons. He's made us his dwelling place. He's placed us in this one body, this wonderful family of God. And his desire in that would be that we would live knowing who we are, living like that, living as sons of God, living as ambassadors for him, living as people who represent the almighty God, living as the children of the most highest, living in a way that would make our father proud. You know, that's what any parent would want, that their children would live in a way that would make them proud. And that's what God's heart, his desire is, that we would conduct our lives in a way that would make him proud. And that wouldn't let all this great power that we have go to waste. Because a Christian is endued with such incredible power. The power that we have the riches of this mystery is that it is Christ in you. Christ in you. That you have the ability, you have the power to walk like Jesus Christ did. Now, that's a, that's a monumental statement. I, I realize that. But that's what the Word of God tells us. That's what God says we are. Jesus Christ himself said, that those that believed on him, the works that he did, they would do also, and even greater works, because he said, I go unto my Father. And that's not only our ability, what we can do, but what God would like us to do. And that only happens when we walk in light of who we are. But it's up to you. It's up to you, because the word here used is, I beseech you. I beseech you that you walk worthy. And that word beseech means to lovingly implore. You know, I grew up always with a picture of God being, you know, the one who if you didn't do what he wanted, he was going to throw a lightning bolt at you or something and get you. And everything was, a, you know, do this or else, you know, I'll make you real sorry. But that's not what this says, and that's not how the church epistles are. Because of all that God's made us, because of how God has made us righteous before him, he's given us this freedom, this liberty. And we have the freedom to do whatever we please, but the intent of it is that we would so recognize his love and so appreciate his love 
that we would in turn lovingly do his will. And that's what beseech indicates. In light of all of what I've done for you, I beseech you, I implore you, that you would walk worthy of it. And then it begins in verse 2 to describe how we do that. And it begins with the word, with all lowliness. And that's a, an interesting um, juxtaposition of words there. Here it is, in light of all that God's made us to be. And, and again, that's really big. You know, we've got Christ in us. And then we begin this worthy walk with lowliness, with lowliness. And that lowliness means humility of mind, humility of mind. That's a word that sometimes is misunderstood, loneliness or even humility. And humility itself is sometimes vague to people, but one of the worst things that could ever happen to you would be to be humiliated, right? I was humiliated. Oh my goodness, that was just terrible. He was humiliated. Because that word indicates that you were just brought to the lowest position. And humility is being in a lower position, but it doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean is that we are to think poorly of ourselves or that we are to have that attitude of, oh, you know, I'm just no good, I'm just a worm, I'm just insignificant, because that doesn't recognize what God made us to be. The right attitude of lowliness is in relationship to God, and we recognize that He is everything, and we are below that. And that anything good we have is because of what he's done for us. In the flesh dwells no good thing. You know, the flesh, the old nature, there's nothing good in that. Romans, again, talks about that old nature. All that we have is wonderful, but it's because of what God did for us, what God did through Jesus Christ. And so it's an attitude that we're always looking to God and we're always recognizing that He is our strength, He is our sufficiency, He is our source in all of life. That's the attitude of humility. It's a freedom from haughty self-sufficiency. There's a good definition of it. Humility is a freedom from haughty self-sufficiency. We're not, you know, those people that pull themselves up by their own bootstraps doesn't mean that we're not independent, that we're you know, dependent on others, but it's recognizing that God's the one that we rely on. He's the one we trust. And then following right on that, because it, you have to have that attitude to get to the next item in the, in the list here in verse 2, is meekness. Here again, meekness is a misunderstood word. Meekness, you know, when I, when I think of meekness, I think of... I think of people that were in the media that would be totally lost on pretty much everybody in this room. <laughs> Maybe Jerry would get the illusion that I have. Um, you know, I think, what was his name? Wally Cox, was that the guy? Yeah, it's even lost on you. Anyway, you know, that's sort of like, oh, just meek, you know, timid, that sometimes it's, it's synonymous in people's minds with timidity. And that's not what meekness is. Meekness means coachability. That's what it means. To be meek is willing to learn. It's coachable. It's coachable. You don't think you know it all. You don't think that you know it all. And we have to have that attitude of meekness to be able to walk worthy of what God's made us to be. That 
not only are we recognizing that, that God's greater than us, but that we can learn so much. Sometimes I've had people talk about, you know, well, I've, I read all the church epistles, and I read them a number of times now. You know, now can I kind of just move on? Well, that's the wrong attitude. If you're meek, if you're expecting always to learn, the Word of God is inexhaustible. You'll always see something more. God will always open up your eyes to see something greater. But you've got to be willing to learn. You've got to be willing to look for it. One of the greatest statements that I've ever heard in my life it was in a class called Power for Abundant Living. And the teacher, Dr. Victor Paul Wirrell, said, it's what you learn after you think you know something that's really important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really true in any field that even when you think you really know something, if you're always willing to learn, then you're always learning. You know, there's things that I've done for my entire adult life, but whenever I do them, I still, I'm always thinking, how can I do this better? How can I do this quicker? I'm always just looking to do that. And that's the attitude we should have always with all things, but especially when it comes to the things of God. What more can I learn? How can I walk greater for Him? And then after that, the next quality of this worthy walk is with long-suffering. Here again, you have to understand that word in light of what it meant in its biblical usage, not what it might mean to you in current usage. Long-suffering sounds like if you're a Christian, well, then you're always suffering. You're you're suffering for a long time. Um, And that's kind of a lot of people's attitude about being a Christian, but that's not what it means. Long-suffering is patience. It's just patience. And it's especially patience in relationship to other people, that we're patient with others. We're patient with people. We recognize that nobody's perfect. We recognize that we don't know what other people have gone through. You know, we haven't walked in their shoes. We don't know what their lives have been. And so we're always being patient with them. And when you're endeavoring to help people, it takes a lot of patience because people change at a snail's pace. People change at a snail's pace, and you just have to be patient. And then, following on that, forbearing one another in love. And that word forbearing, it's to support one another. It's to hold each other up. That's what it means. That when we're doing those things, when we're looking to God, when we're always willing to learn, when we're patient with people, then we're also supportive of others. And we can be those that that can help one another. And especially when one of us is weak, when one of us has a bad day, when something bad happens in life, because things do. Until the Lord returns, there's going to be things that happen. You know, having the more abundant life, being a Christian, doesn't mean that everything will always go right, but that we are more than conquerors in every situation. That's what we're promised in God's Word. Things are going to go wrong. Things will happen at times. We don't expect or believe for that, but it will. When it does then, we have a God of deliverance. We have a God that can always turn things around, and we expect that. But we can help each other so much in those situations as well. You know, an encouraging word, or just being loving, compassionate, whatever whatever in that situation would be of help, 
That's how we're supportive of one another. God placed us in this wonderful family. And this worthy walk is walking in light of that. This walking worthy, this balance, relates directly to the first the subject, the great subject of those first three chapters, which is the mystery, the one body. The mystery is this one body, and the practical application of it is keeping the unity, and that's what it's getting to here. And that's verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit Unity is the practical application of that mystery. You know, to put it in the simplest terms, and one that really relates to my heart and hopefully yours, is God put us in a family. That's what the mystery is about. He put us in this family, and the practical application of it is that He wants us to be unified. He wants us to be together and strong. Endeavoring to keep that unity in the bond of peace, which is harmony. Boy, that's so opposite of what so much of what Christianity has been over the course of history. So much of what Christianity has been is anything but harmony, anything but unity. You know, I, I haven't looked up recently what the different total number of different denominations is, but if I looked it up 10 minutes ago, it's probably got a couple more in that time since I'd, I'd look it up. Because it's constantly anything but unity. And people are off in different directions, and not only are they in different directions, but there's so much fighting amongst one another. But that's the opposite of what God's heart would be. We're to endeavor to keep the unity. And it's not to make a unity, there's a difference there. Making a unity is man just by his own you know, ideas, his own designs, his own intellect, his own programs, having some big ecumenical movements and trying to get everybody, and that's not what it's about. It's a spiritual unity. And we keep that unity not by man's rules and regulations or designs, but by living what is described here. It's as we are living the way that God describes for us in these three chapters. That's how we keep the unity and the bond of peace. The word endeavoring means, it's an interesting word in the Greek, spudazo. Um, it's just used in a couple of very significant places, but it means to put forth a diligent effort considering the brevity of time. And it takes effort to do this. To keep the unity requires effort. It requires effort because there'll be times when there's disagreements and life gets busy and people drift apart and there's so many different ways that that, that unity can be broken down. You know, I think about just in my lifetime, talking about family, how much the nuclear family, the earthly family, how much that has deteriorated in the course of my life. You know, families are not what they once were. You, you know, the divorce rate's way up. Now, whatever divorce rate you come up with is probably not valid because so, few, so fewer people bother getting married in the first place. And, you know, you have families and, you know, a lot of different situations. And 
not judging any of that, and, and people make the best of all the circumstances, that's not my point. But my point is that the family is, is such a wonderful thing when it's at its best, and the adversary's done so much to attack it. And just as he has done that to break down the, the nuclear family, there's so many ways that the spiritual family, God's family, is broken down. But we're to do everything that we can to keep that unity in the bond of peace, in that harmony, peace. You know, there's only two places where that word bond is used in a positive sense. That word's only used in four places, bond. Um, one's the bond of iniquity. We don't want that bond. Um, I forget the other one, but the two positive places talk about the love of God, which is the bond of perfectness, and here, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we have two things that are spoken of as being a binding agent in the Word of God in these epistles. Two things that really bind the family together. One is love, and the other one's peace. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Love and peace. Love and peace. And the word, that word bond, it's, it's used in other places. Oh, that's the other place that it's used. Um, it's not a negative thing. It's actually translated, I think, um, bands um, when it talks about the body. And it's, it's used in other Greek literature to talk about the ligaments of the body and how the ligaments of the body are what keep your bones together. Why you don't just fall apart there, or you're not literally a bag of bones. Um, it's the ligaments. The ligaments are what attach to keep one bone with the other one. And we have these different members of the body of Christ. Many members, but one body. And each member has its own specific place in the body, its own specific function. But what keeps it together, what keeps us has a unified effort, is this bond of peace, of harmony. If it's going to ha be what God wanted it to be, we have to have that. And then it goes on in verse 4. There's a, another kind of a list here where it talks again, and notice how often the word one is used in these next verses. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One, 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 one. Unity is oneness. It is oneness. And that unity comes not from what the members do, but what God made. It comes from God, and it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where that unity is resident within. And it's only as we are in fellowship with Him, walking with Him in harmony, that we're able to have that genuine harmony and fellowship with one another. It's not about just nice social things. There's something spiritual behind it. When you're close with God, and I'm close with God, and we're both really walking with God, it's easy for us to be close together. And when one of us moves out of fellowship with God, then no matter what else you have in common, it won't be the same. I've experienced that with some people that I was just the closest to in my life. When there was no longer that unity with him, we didn't have that same type of unity together.
Verse 7 says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things in all. Here, and that's all talking about, again, Jesus Christ and what he did. In that he descended, in that he was buried, he also arose. And because he arose, we now have all that we have. And God would simply ask that we would do something worthwhile with it. God bless you. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.